Hello, everyone. This is Katie. Thank you for joining us today on Health Formation, the podcast where we give you health and wellness news to use. I am here today with my guest, Dr. Amber McClendon. Hello, Amber. Hi, Katie. Thank you for having me. Thanks for joining me. Welcome, welcome. So Amber is one of the faculty here with me at Campbell, and she is also one of my mentors. Um, So Amber was an assigned mentor to me when I started working here, but then she's now a chosen mentor because she's so great. Um, So I'm so glad to have her today. So Amber is a geriatrician or geriatric-focused pharmacist. And I'll have her introduce herself in a moment, Um, but I did just want to give you a little bit of the background on today's episode. So today we're going to be focusing a lot on dementia, Um, and the reason that I started thinking about having this topic on the podcast is because one of my mom's friends actually is a nurse, and she was talking to me about how she wished there were more resources for family members when they have someone that they love that has dementia because they don't really understand the progression of the disease, what to expect, and changes that may occur in that patient. So that's kind of a lot of what we're going to talk about today. Um, But first, I would like to have Amber give us a little intro of herself. So why don't you tell us a little bit about your background, where you went to pharmacy school, and all of that. Sure. So I grew up in Alabama and my great grandmother actually had Alzheimer's disease. And so I would go with my grandmother to visit her and I don't have any memories of her interacting much with us or conversing. And I think as a child, it was a really scary thing to think that your memories could go away. And so I think that always sort of was rattling around in the back of my mind. And then I did my undergraduate work at Duke. And um, while I was there, I seemed to every research paper I had to write or project I would work on, I ended up being drawn to Alzheimer's. And it was nice because Duke did a lot of the early research into genetic factors that increase your risk for dementia. And so it furthered my interest in that. And then in going to pharmacy school, I realized that I was drawn to the older people who came into the pharmacy. I liked having conversations with them. I felt like they asked good questions. And so... I had a mentor myself who offered the opportunity to learn more about geriatrics while I was in school, and I took her up on that. So I completed a certificate in aging at UNC with other health profession students who were interested in working with older adults. And so that also introduced me to the very interdisciplinary nature of geriatrics, which is one of the things that I like about it. So you're always working with a team of people to come up with a plan for someone instead of having each person in their silo developing their plan. So now I work here at Campbell and practice at a continuing care retirement community where we have independent living, assisted living, and skilled nursing all on the same campus. And so we have quite a few uh, residents who live there with dementia and see a lot of their family members who struggle with the same things you were mentioning, whether it be not knowing how to communicate or interact with their loved one, but they're also worried about what that might mean for their own personal risk for developing dementia. And your practice site is in a little bit more of an affluent area. So I think thinking about that in patients that may not have access to those resources also kind of confounds or compounds the problem. Absolutely. Yeah, certainly my training in school, I was exposed to a different aspect um, with older adults who didn't have good access to healthcare. It's very different from where I practice now, where they've typically been very well educated, always had good access to healthcare, and can afford a lot of the resources that they may need. So in other 
retirement communities similar to yours? Are there usually pharmacists on staff there? So no, my practice site is very unique. Um, Most of the time, the uh, skilled nursing facilities will use a long-term care pharmacy. Um, So the medications are typically shipped in on a daily basis or delivered in via truck. Um, And then they'll have a consultant pharmacist who comes out one or two days a month to review the charts and meet the federal regulation requirements. So to be embedded at a practice site where I'm not actually dispensing the medicines is a very unique situation. Um, So it's nice we're able to conduct home visits with the independent living residents and do medication reviews, trying to minimize um, their risk of having a medication-related problem down the road and keep them living independently as long as possible. And then in the healthcare end of things, we work with the team and with the residents and their families to answer any questions they have about their medications and further optimize what they're taking to give them the best quality of life while they're there. And I typically have three pharmacy students with me and a pharmacy resident a lot of the time. So we're a pretty robust team and I definitely think that's unique. Yeah, but it's a huge value add for the people that live there. So I think that's great. I would hope that other communities would consider adding on a pharmacist because I'm sure doctors miss things all the time, especially when patients are on a ton of medications. And I know a lot of your patients are on a ton of medications. So I think it's great. I definitely wish more places offered it. It would give my residents more opportunities to use their skills. Oh, yeah. I didn't think about that. That's cool. All right. So should we transition over to talking a little bit more about the different types of dementia and some things that people should know before we delve deep into the science. Um, So I guess to start out, can you just give us a little definition of Alzheimer's and how that's different from dementia and maybe delirium? Sure. So all of those involve some type of confusion that's happening. Most of the differences have to do with the anatomy underlying it, which we can't really see in someone who's alive. So a lot of times they present to us clinically very similar. And so generally a person has difficulty with short-term memory. So the way I see this most often manifesting itself is that after a while they'll start repeating the same things um, and having the same conversation. So especially in, in mild disease or early delirium or confusion, it may not be readily apparent that there's anything going on. And so oftentimes I think that's why it can be missed in just a general checkup at a physician's office because patients are usually on their best behavior and they're only spending 10 or 15 minutes with the provider and so it may get overlooked. But when you're a loved one with someone with dementia and you're spending much more time with them, you start to see that you've had a whole conversation and now you're having the exact same conversation again because they don't remember. Um, So dementia just kind of covers a lot of those different types. Delirium is something that happens more acutely, so very short term. Um, So, you know, we've all seen those videos that have gone viral of people after they've got anesthesia (laughs) at the dentist and the crazy things they're saying. So that's, that's an exact picture of delirium and that's how it presents in younger people. But in older patients, if they have a major hospitalization or a new medication, then you can see a very similar presentation to dementia where the delirium may last a lot longer than it would in someone who's younger. And we sometimes see delirium on top of dementia. So they have an underlying memory issue, but then they get a urinary tract infection and are now even more confused than they are at baseline. 
But delirium comes in and goes out. And I always use the example, once I went to interview someone um, in our skilled nursing facility, and she was just telling us how grateful she was to her husband for thinking ahead and planning ahead for them to come live there and that she felt so well taken care of even after he died. And then we asked her some of the questions we needed to regarding her meds. And before we left, she said, she started asking for her husband and wanted to know where he oh, was. So in so this, sad. It is. Um, and in a short time frame of 15 minutes, she'd gone from knowing he had passed away to not. And that's delirium. So in a very short time period, the confusion comes and goes. Um, whereas with Alzheimer's and other dementias, it tends to be more stable from day to day and moment to moment, but just gets worse over time. So... Um, Alzheimer's is a subtype of dementia where we don't really understand what's happening, but there are plaques and tangles forming in the brain that are killing the brain cells. And um, it typically starts in their short-term memory area of the brain and then will progress to other areas of the brain that affect their language, their movement, their mood. Um, And so Alzheimer's is very characteristic for being very slow to come on. So it's not an abrupt change overnight. It's very slow onset, but it's a continued decline. So they'll continue to get worse. And you typically don't see any improvements or even stabilization with that. Uh, the mo- second most common type of dementia we see in the United, St- United States is vascular dementia. So that's f- as a result of stroke or small vessel disease in the brain where their brain's just not getting enough blood flow to stay alive. And that's definitely increasing in prevalence, of course, in the country with all the obesity. Yep. And I know um, diabetes, type 2 diabetes is a huge risk factor for vascular dementia. Yes. Because of the lack of blood flow or impaired blood flow to the brain. So... I've heard of dementia actually be, being related to or considered type 3 diabetes. Um, so I was listening to a different podcast and they kind of talked about how, you know, everyone is kind of being exposed to a lot of things today that are making them have some kind of chronic illness. And what you are exposed to that might give you diabetes may give me Alzheimer's. So it's kind of just the body constantly being under stress and inflammation and in an inflammatory state being exposed to toxicants and unhealthy foods and sedentary lifestyle. Um, And so I guess they're finding now that insulin resistance in the brain can also be related to dementia and lead to dementia. Um, And I was reading an article that said that the patients that had Alzheimer's when they were looking at their brains after they had passed away, they had decreased insulin receptors in the brain um, and, so, and decre- decreased insulin levels in the brain. So I guess it's just another thing to think about um, as well. And I don't know, it's related to the APO4E allele. So I don't know if you want to talk a little bit about that because you definitely know more about that than me. <laughs> sure, I can speak a little bit to both of those points. So I think there's still so much about the brain itself and particularly with dementia that we still don't know. So there's definitely a lot of room for increased research in this area because the fact that we haven't found a cure is directly tied to the fact that we don't fully understand what's causing it. And I think this idea of type 3 diabetes being a factor is very intriguing because what we do know with the types of tangles that I was mentioning earlier that we see in the brain, 
that's usually formed in the glucose channels that bring glucose into the brain cell. And so if those channels get tangled up, the brain cells aren't getting glucose. So I think it's a very intriguing pathway to look at new research for new potential treatments. With the ApoE4, um, that's just a genetic trait that people carry and it increases their risk for Alzheimer's. So not everyone with Alzheimer's has an ApoE4 allele, but we definitely know if you got that from both parents and have two copies of that allele, it significantly increases your risk for Alzheimer's. And it may be very linked to this blood glucose and insulin resistance factor. There's again, just still so much we don't know. But the ApoE4 was one of the first genetic discoveries that they tied to Alzheimer's and hopefully will help us get a better understanding as we move forward. But again, not everyone has that. And if you did 23andMe or one of those other genetic mapping, I think ApoE4 is one of the genes that they look for on there. So just another thing to think about. Um, so what are some risk factors, maybe modifiable or non-modifiable risk factors that people may have that increase their risk for dementia? So I think the biggest risk factor is age. Ultimately, you know, now that we're all living longer, we see more dementia. So we can have people who are very healthy all through their 90s, but if they live to be past 100, oftentimes they will develop a some level of dementia just from age itself. Right. So that's probably the biggest one. But we certainly see people who develop it younger. I think that definitely has a bigger genetic component. And then we know a lot about lifestyle. So one of the things in a lot of the lifelong studies that have been done on people, there's a fascinating study um, that was done in nuns with a researcher. He was at the time at the University of Minnesota, but he had access to this convent of nuns. And the great thing about that is they had all pretty much eaten the same foods and been in the same environment. So a lot of factors were controlled for them. And then he um, got them to sign over their brains after death for them to look at. And so they were able to confirm whether or not they had Alzheimer's and then try to look at factor, look back at factors in their life that may have increased or decreased their risk for dementia. And one of the things they found um, has been educational level. So the Uh more education a person has in their background, it's a little more protective. But, you know, we see people like Ronald Reagan, who was obviously very educated, who still developed dementia. So it's not completely protective, but it's a factor. And another fascinating thing I thought that that was discovered in the nun study was when they look back at their diaries, the people who were more flowery in their writing and maybe better descriptive writers were less likely to develop dementia than those who were more straightforward and maybe just listed facts. And so there's obviously so much we still don't understand. Creativity. Creativity, yes. Um, So if going back to the brain thing, if you do more reading or more puzzles or brain games, I know there's like apps you can do now. Do you know if that helps to decrease your risk or is that just good for overall brain health? Sure. So I think that's an area that we still don't know a lot about. It's emerging. One of the most interesting things I've seen lately going into that is that they've been able to develop an app that has you kind of take a fish through a stream sort of, and there's different paths you can take it. And that the people who took longer to find a path we're more likely to develop dementia later. So we're developing, but we're using games (laughs) to develop better screening tools for dementia than we've ever had before. And that's important in research because oftentimes we don't detect dementia in patients until it's way too late. And so having something like a game that we can do when we're younger 
and track that progress over time could really help us identify those patients who are at most risk and perhaps put in some of these lifestyle interventions earlier. But most likely, the changes we need to make to prevent dementia or at least minimize our chances need to be much, much earlier in our life than where our current studies are. Um, And some of the things we'll talk about today, a lot of the studies weren't started until people were in their 50s or 60s, where probably all those precursors were already set in into the person as to whether or not they were going to develop dementia. So it seems like the most important takeaway from that is just living a healthy lifestyle is the best way to prevent, especially if you maybe have a parent or a grandparent that had dementia and you're worried about developing that, just trying to stay healthy in all of the aspects of eating and physical activity will just have the added benefit of giving you brain health as well. Exactly. Particularly with those vascular factors we were mentioning earlier, the healthier you can protect your brain from that and prevent that blood loss in any way is going to be better. So we know with lifestyle, physical activity, diet are going to play a huge role in uh, preventing those. And oftentimes with Alzheimer's, we find it's a mixed picture. They have some aspects of Alzheimer's and some of vascular dementia. So I think we're definitely going to find a lot more lifestyle factors that we can implement to better our chances of not developing dementia. So one of the lifestyle factors, I guess, that was has been a little bit more studied recently is called the MIND diet. So that's the Mediterranean and DASH intervention for neurodegenerative delay. So basically the diet takes the best components of the Mediterranean diet and the best components of the DASH diet for brain health and puts it together into one diet. So generally the Mediterranean diet is really good for cardiovascular. DASH is for lowering hypertension or helping to control your blood pressure. Um, And it looks at those two diets and then takes the ones that have most benefit on your brain and puts it together into one. And I guess I refer to it as a diet, but it's more of a guide. It's not a really very strict diet. Um, But there are a bunch of studies that are looking at the use of the MIND diet or following the MIND diet and how that helps to reduce your risk of developing Alzheimer's or dementia, I guess, later in life. Do you guys use that at all? Or do you, any of your patients follow the MIND diet or any, do you know anything about it? So we don't see it a lot where I practice mostly again, because the the MIND diet is more about prevention. Right. And by the time patients are coming to see me or are moving into our community, too late. Um, it's, it's usually too late. But I definitely think we've heard more and more about the benefits of the Mediterranean diet. And I do see a lot of our independent residents in particular really trying to eat healthy and working with our dining and dietary committee to offer more options. So I know, for instance, at Glen Eyre, we offer a whole lot of fish. Oh, um, that's good. Yeah. And Fresh fruits always available. And so a lot of the components that you would want to include in that, we definitely try and offer those foods to patients. But I think, you know, if we're thinking about eating healthy, certainly the earlier that we do that, the better our chances are. And this is one of the um, lifestyle factors that is most strongly endorsed on the Alzheimer's Association website for being able to prevent dementia. Because again, we still don't have enough data or understanding of the disease state to promote a lot of things, but because of the data with this MIND diet, it is one of the things that they encourage that people look into as a way of potentially preventing dementia. And um, one of the other things I thought was interesting about the MIND diet that I was researching this morning, so patients that have a stro- have stroke are at much increased risk for developing dementia, but they even found that patients that had a stroke, if they then implemented the MIND diet, it reduced their risk for developing dementia. So if you have a loved one that has a stroke, then that could be a good way of eating to help them 
reduce that risk. So in general, the MIND diet basically just encourages you to not eat a lot of saturated or trans fats um, because those are have pro-inflammatory markers and they help or they increase your risk for like developing plaques in your brain. And they also can promote insulin resistance in the brain. Um, and then it focuses on high intake of omega-3 fatty acids and low intake of omega-6 fatty acids. So omega-6 fatty acids are pro-inflammatory and they're found in a lot of your vegetable oils. Canola oil is really high in omega-6s. Um, and you want to focus on those long chain fatty acids that are found in the omega-3 fatty acids, more commonly found in like olive oil or fish. And it does say when you're looking at the MIND diet that you want to get these in the whole food form. So eating the fish from form of an omega-3 or getting it from a nut is better than just supplementing with fish oil. Definitely. I think more and more studies that come out with the fish oil supplements don't really show the same benefits that we see with incorporating it into the diet. Right. So the MIND diet focuses on increasing 10 foods in your diet and then minimizing five foods. And it's not a full-fledged diet. So if you only ate these 10 foods, it wouldn't be enough to fill your whole diet at the rate at which they recommend it. Um, but they just say to try to eat as many of them as you can. I don't know. If, do you want to talk about it a little bit? Sure. So some of the foods that they encourage people eating are the things that we know to be healthy, green leafy vegetables. And that was one of the things the mind diet in particular focused on versus the Mediterranean diet, which was just vegetables in general. Yep. Um, so green leafy vegetables, all of the non-starchy veggies, so none of the potatoes, um, a lot of berries and nuts. And then, as you mentioned, the olive oil is going to be healthier than the canola oils. Whole grains. Uh, and then the fatty cold water fish, such as salmon, sardines, mackerel, uh, beans, free-range poultry, and even a glass of red wine per week yep. is a component of this diet. But I thought it was interesting because for the feet, the free-range poultry, they said you should incorporate one or two servings of chicken into your diet, chicken or turkey into your diet a week, which I think that's low for most people. Most people eat chicken multiple times per week, so. Definitely. I think whether it's healthy chicken or unhealthy right. chicken, exactly. most people are definitely eating more than that. And then the, the limiting foods are... To me, they're pretty obvious. So they're foods that are really just unhealthy. So butter and margarine, cheese, red meat, fried foods, they say, and I thought it was funny too because it said poultry, but the MIND diet does not encourage fried chicken. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> um, and then pastries and sweets. So anything that's high in saturated fats or trans fats. And another thing to point out for the MIND diet is that you don't have to follow it 100%. Even incorporating this a little bit into your lifestyle is helpful and will have improvements in your um, cognitive health. Definitely. So the study really looked at, again, just how much people adhered to this diet. Were they more or less adherent? And what they found is that people who focus more on the healthy foods and less on the unhealthy foods, the more they did that, the less chance they had of developing Alzheimer's. And it was a fairly large group they looked at of almost a thousand patients yep. um, in the later half of life with the mean age of 80. Um, so definitely something that we can incorporate even later in life with diet to protect potentially decrease our risk of Alzheimer's. Yep. And the patients that were more adherent kind of were more healthy in general because they had lower rates of diabetes and they were more physically active. Um, so just thinking about that as well, just going back to incorporating that whole, whole healthy lifestyle. 
Certainly, because if you think, if you're really adhering to that diet, you're probably doing a lot of other things in your life. And one of the things that did stand out to me in the study was how much more physically active those patients were than patients who were not very adherent to the MIND diet. Yeah, it was like 4.5 hours per week, which is probably more than most young people. And patients in the study were up to age 98, so (laughs) little people walking around. (laughs) Oh, yeah. We have a lot of that. Um, We have a wellness center in our community, and they offer a lot of great classes. But then uh, we have a lot of people who walk or get out and play golf. It's it's a very active community, for sure. Keeps them healthy. All right, so another kind of, I guess, modifiable risk factor to some extent is blood pressure control in patients that have hypertension. Um, And one of the studies that looked at this was a subset of the SPRINT study, which is the SPRINT MIND trial. So do you want to tell us a little bit about that trial? Sure. So SPRINT itself was really devised to look at how aggressive should we be with our blood pressure control. Should we get people down to below what we consider normal, so less than 120 over 80, or should we stick with our traditional blood pressure goals of just trying to keep people less than 140 over 90. And so that was really the sprint itself travels mainly looking at cardiovascular outcomes, but a subset of that study was looking at blood pressure control as it relates to the potential to develop dementia. And so that was the sprint mind study. So the sprint mind study compared intensive blood pressure control of less than 120 over 80 to traditional of less than 140 over 90 in, again, an older population who probably already have risk factors. And they... The results were a little underwhelming. Yes. Um, But there are some (laughs) factors that went into that. So ultimately what they found as far as the risk of developing dementia, there was no difference whether you were aggressive with your blood pressure control or less aggressive. But they did find that one of the precursors for dementia, something we refer to as mild cognitive impairment, and that's typically where patients are having issues with memory, but no other issues in their life. So no difficulty in any of their daily functions. They can still hold down their job, uh, no problems with movement, language, object recognition, or overall decision and planning, but just some mild memory problems. That's a precursor to dementia. So we know a lot of those patients up to 80% will go on to develop dementia. And they did find that using intensive blood pressure control decreased the risk of developing mild cognitive impairment. But one of the things with the SPRINT study, it being a larger study itself, it was stopped early because of the benefits for heart health. And so one of the interesting things about dementia that I think has made it very difficult for us to have a lot of the data we'd like to is that it is this slowly developing process that's happening over years. And that makes it really hard to study. It's hard to get people involved in something and follow them over the decades, really, that it would take for us to understand it. So with this study only being 3.3 years, we probably just didn't have enough time to see the difference. That is a really short follow-up time to look at something like dementia because it takes years and years to develop. Yeah. So I think, you know, again, it just, it gives us a little more evidence that of course the healthy, healthier we are, the lower that we can keep our blood pressure. It's most likely not going to hurt us, but certainly can potentially help us. And because of the even mildly positive results of this study, um, it made a lot of the news and is definitely a promising area for future studies because it was one of the best design studies they'd had to look at a preventative measure like blood pressure control and the risk of dementia. So I think there's going to be more research funding and trials going into fully fleshing that out. Um, Because Right now, really, with Alzheimer's, we have so few 
positive outcomes in studies that anything that's even mildly positive, we try to jump on and build on that a little bit more so that we can more fully understand the disease and come up with a better way of preventing it and treating it. And I think too, for this study, it was prospective. So I think that added to the validity of the study Mm -hmm. um, because a lot of the studies that we look at for dementia are retrospective and going back and seeing, okay, this patient had dementia. What were some risk factors or what could have we, what could we have changed? Um, But this actually gives us something that's prospective and that's hard too because prospective studies are expensive and when they have to be so long, it's hard to have a prospective study for something like Alzheimer's or dementia. You know, the NUN study we talked about earlier is an example of that retrospective. So they just went back and looked right. in the records, but we can't determine cause and effect from that. Right. And what we need moving forward to develop better treatments is really understanding better the causes of dementia. And so having more of these prospective studies that um, will require some more funding. So I do encourage anyone, if you've had a loved one, to participate in fundraisers for the Alzheimer's Association. In October, they usually do walks across the country uh, to raise money. And in June every year, they do fundraising efforts for the longest day. On the longest day of the year, um, one of the big kind of publications and books talking about the difficulty of dealing um, with a loved one with dementia was referred to as the longest day. So every day on the longest day of the year, the Alzheimer's Association does a big push in awareness and fundraising. Um, And so I think uh, if that at all inspires you, that's definitely a worthy cause. The Nurses Health Study is a huge cohort that is prospective. They probably don't have patients that would really be hitting dementia age yet because it's nurses. It started in the 80s, but that would be interesting. I bet they'll have some data out of there to look at prospectively for dementia development too. All right. So we talked a lot about um, prevention and risk factors for developing dementia. Let's transition over a little bit to talking about what you might experience if you do have a loved one that is diagnosed with dementia. Um, So kind of what happens, what to expect and how you should handle that as a caregiver or as a family member for of someone that has dementia. Sure. So I think the topic as a whole is probably bigger than anything we could ever yes. cover in a podcast. So I'll hit some highlights. highlights. But again, I think the Alzheimer's Association is such a wonderful resource. And some of the things that they can link you to is a local support group. And I think support groups for caregiving and dementia are just so vitally important. Hearing from other people who are going through the same experiences or maybe a little bit different can be encouraging. Um, And one of the things we know about caregiving and Alzheimer's disease, it's a 24-hour job. And it's easy to feel very lonely. And there's so much data about the negative health outcomes from people who are caregiving because of the amount of stress on them and support groups can really help minimize that and also just help you identify strategies as different problems develop. Um, With Alzheimer's being an ever-changing disease and ever-progressing disease, it's not like you figure it out and then you can lock in and set a routine and it's all good going forward. It's always changing and so having that support system is really important. Uh, Another thing that um, I think is relatively new on the website is they have a tool to help you identify people in your community who will be willing to help you and develop a schedule that they can sign up online, whether that be to help drive your loved one to an appointment or just bring a meal or any of those things that we know can just take one 
box off someone's to-do list and make a big difference in their quality of life. Um, it's really important if you're a caregiver to take care of your own health, to make sure you're going to your doctor's appointments, that you're getting in the time for physical activity, um, that you have time to prepare healthy meals and shop for them. And so that's a tool that can free up some of those areas of your life and help you kind of coordinate with a large group of people because oftentimes other people do want to help, but it's easy to feel very isolated when you're caregiving. And the website also walks through the different um, stages of the disease, how things will progress. So things with language, how do you communicate with someone in the mild stages of the disease versus moderate versus severe. So always making sure you're making eye contact with your loved one. Um, you know, we all get comfortable in our families and we can have conversations to the back of someone's head. But as someone's developing dementia, it's important to make sure we're making that eye contact, having that connection when we communicate and realizing as the disease progresses that our loved one's not going to be able to initiate or start the conversation. And so more of the burden may be placed on you as the caregiver to uh, have that conversational relationship throughout the day. You're coming up with the questions and the topics, but keeping in mind too that your loved one may not be living in the current time. They may be living in a past time. So finding a way to relate current events to experiences we've all had throughout our lives. So they still feel like they have something to contribute. Um, we call a lot of that reminiscing. So, you know, when times are coming up like a presidential election, you may not be able to go into all the politics that are <laughs> happening today and probably don't want to. No. But, um, but, you know, you can talk about big, you know, elections they remember in the past or when do they remember going to vote. Um, and so there are things they can still contribute to conversations and things you can talk about. But then as the disease progresses, you'll want to ask more and more simple questions. And eventually it may get to a situation where you're mostly asking yes and no questions. Um, but sometimes caregivers get frustrated that they can't get all the information that they need from their loved one, don't know how to communicate. So there's resources on the Alzheimer's Association website to walk you through that at different stages, as well as all the physical aspects. You know, how do you manage incontinence uh, in mm -hmm. someone who has dementia? And then probably the most distressing are the behavioral aspects that can come on. And one of the difficult things about Alzheimer's is it's very unpredictable to know what kind of behaviors. It varies extremely from patient to patient. Some people with Alzheimer's become very paranoid. They're very worried that their loved ones are stealing from them or that their spouse is cheating on them. And unfortunately, there's not, you can't use logic to convince them that that's not true. Um, and so sometimes behaviors are one of the big reasons that people end up needing to move into a nursing home and can't be a caregiver anymore. But on an encouraging note, I would say in my experience, I've always found even if the person with dementia can't recognize you and say, you are my daughter, Katie, they recognize that you're special to them. So we often still see them smile and light up. And so they may not be able to name you or that relationship, but they definitely still appreciate your attention and your time. Um, and the Alzheimer's Association website gives you lots of ideas of things you can do when you're spending time. And some of those mind um, exercises we were talking about earlier, like puzzles and things, are good things you can do with your loved one during that time. So... I guess this would be for more for patients that have more mild disease, but when they are their short-term memory gets lost and they get confused, um, and maybe you have to repeat the same thing over and over. As a caregiver, should you? What's the best way to handle that? Like, should you just pretend that you never said it and you're letting them know for the first time? Obviously, it can get frustrating, but trying to not show your frustration. 
Um, is that the best way to handle it or is there different strategies? Absolutely. I think, you know, that's one of the things that I think being in a caregiver support group can help with. One, with different strategies, but two, it, it can be very frustrating right. living with someone with dementia and having a safe place to vent those frustrations and not taking it out on your loved one is obviously a better, a much better option. But definitely just keeping in mind and having some understanding that they don't remember that conversation right. from earlier. And so oftentimes we do repeat ourselves. We sometimes have family meetings at our site where, you know, the person is, has a concern and they bring it up five or six times during the meeting and we keep reiterating it. Putting things in writing can be helpful because oftentimes we've learned to read at a very early age. So that's still part of our long-term memory. And so for them having something that they can go back to and read again and again can be helpful. And then sometimes just changing the environment. So, um, you know, trying to get them, we call it redirection, trying to focus their attention on something else instead of perseverating on the thing that's most bothering them. But that's going to change from day to day. Sometimes a tactic you used yesterday that worked really well and engaged them today won't work and you have to, to start all over. So again, that's why I think the support groups are so helpful because you're constantly in need of new ideas. But being as understanding as possible, but also knowing your limits. So sometimes yes. saying... You know, uh, we we have talked about this earlier. Here it is in writing. Um, and then maybe stepping away, letting someone else come in and have that conversation again, just so that you don't get to the point of being angry. And as a caregiver, too, I think about, like, if you're married and your spouse is still alive and you're older, and that's really stressful on you, and you're already probably dealing with a lot of health issues or some health issues since you're aging, um, and then your loved one, and you have to care for them all the time. So knowing when to take a break from that and mm-hmm. focus on yourself and self-care because you can't take care of someone else if you're ill or if you're unwell in your own right. So I think exactly. that's really important. And that's where, too, there are respite services available, um, and those are different in every community. So looking to those and even your local Department of Aging could be a good resource for you about what's in your area to help with that. But I know there are a lot of adult daycare centers, and those can be expensive for some people, but it's a great option if um, you can afford it to put someone into a program where they're going to have all of those mindful stimulations that we talked about. They do physical activity. um, They eat healthy foods. They are doing the reminiscing activities and things that are geared toward keeping their mind healthy, but also keeping them around other people. Right. Um, Because sometimes you're caregiving for a parent or even a spouse and you still have to have a job and you need to go grocery shopping and to your own doctor's appointments. And so having a safe place that you can put your loved one where they'll be engaged and active and, and two, it helps establish a routine and routine is really important in dementia and minimizing some of the uh, anxiety and distress that patients will feel. And a lot of times these adult day programs are a good part of that routine. But there are also, um, I know when I trained in the VA hospital, they offered respite care for families so that if they needed to go out of town for a wedding for a loved one and they couldn't take their spouse, then they would um, have them come to the VA. And again, it might be distressful that first day, but a lot of times we find people with dementia can adapt after a while. And particularly with a good group of caregivers, who are well-educated in dementia and can engage them early and help them feel comfortable, then those oftentimes are really good options. Sometimes we're afraid to use them because we are worried about that initial distress that someone may have. 
But most of the time, they adjust much more quickly than I think we give them credit for. And it's so important to the health of the caregiver that they do get that time away in any way they can. You know, if if someone offers to help you and and they're a relatively tr- trustworthy person, yes. then take them up on those offers. I think, you know, we we all try so hard to be so independent and take care of ourselves and don't tap into our community as much as we should. And caregiving's just a really big area where people need to tap into their resources. Definitely. So there are some medications that are available to help people with dementia or Alzheimer's, but they're not great, right? So if you have a patient that is on one of those medications, what are some of the expectations for how they may respond to them? Um, will they improve? How will they help the, the patient? Great. So we we really only have two different types of options available. Um, the biggest uh, class are our cholinesterase inhibitor drugs, and we have three options in that category. All of the medications that are approved for treating dementia don't help improve it, and they don't even help stabilize it. They just slow down that progression a little bit. Um, So I think an important expectation is not to expect much in the way of improvement or that they're even going to stay the same at the level where they are. Right. But um, one of the best studies we have with those drugs is it's been shown to delay nursing home placement for up to two years. And so that can be important to you if you want to keep your loved one with you for longer and able to do more things for themselves for longer, then those are a good option. Most of them are covered by insurance plans, so it can be an affordable option and helps you feel like you're doing something. But again, it's not going to be a miracle drug. They're mostly well-tolerated. People um, may have some GI upset with them initially, but that tends to go away over time. And overall, they're well-tolerated. And then there's another class of medications we add when they progress more to the moderate stage of the disease for moderate and severe and similar expectations. It's not going to make them better, but it may help slow that decline down. We use them all the time because they're relatively affordable and because the side effects aren't that bad. But we also need to set very reasonable expectations that they're not going to do a whole lot. And so if you choose not to start a medication, that's fine too. It's definitely not a cut and dry. You absolutely should do this. Um, So it's a very individualized choice. And I always talk to, um, when I'm talking to caregivers of loved ones, I usually talk to them about, you know, if this is my grandmother, this is what I would do based on their individual situation to kind of help them through that. Because every case is different. Sometimes the risk versus benefit isn't the same for everyone. So it's not cookie cutter, put everyone on the medicine. Right. So there are some other medications too that may actually worsen your risk of dementia. And we have one study, anticholinergic drug exposure and the risk of dementia and nested case control that we looked at. Can you talk a little bit about that study and maybe what people should consider if they have even a parent that's on one of these anticholinergic medications? Absolutely. So um, this is definitely my bread and butter as a geriatric pharmacist. We're always looking to try and figure out what we can take people off of and what may be hurting them versus helping them. And um, we've always looked at anticholinergic drugs. So these are medications that come in for a million different reasons, and they tend to cause dry eyes, dry mouth. So if you have a medication you know that's caused dry mouth, it's likely to be anticholinergic in nature. But it can 
also cause urinary retention. So people have a more difficult time going to the bathroom. And sometimes we use these drugs for that reason. So if people have incontinence, we usually use anticholinergic drugs to help them hold on to their urine a little better. And it can cause constipation. I think the classic example is Benadryl or diphenhydramine, which a lot of us take over the counter for either allergies or to help with sleep. And that's a medication that we know as people get older can actually start to, if they're taking it, they can start to look like they have dementia and it may just be medication related. So whereas it makes you sleepy when you're younger, um, when you're older and not only makes you sleepy, but it can make you very confused, contribute to a lot of dizziness, increase your risk for falls. And now this study that we looked at um, further contributes to the data that you may actually be at an increased risk of developing dementia from taking drugs like these. So I know one of the groups of medication that they looked at in the study was antidepressants, but I think maybe it's important to identify which antidepressants they might be referring to because obviously not all antidepressants have anticholinergic properties, um, but I don't think that a person that's not a pharmacist would know that. Um, So maybe just pointing that out because a lot of people as we age, I think antidepressants are becoming more and more common um, and people might be on them. And I don't want everyone, if they look up the study, to think, oh, my mom's on some Zoloft, is she going to become diagnosed with dementia or something? Exactly. So this particular study used a lot of different references and ways to define anticholinergic drugs. But here uh, in the U.S. and working with older patients, we typically refer to what's known as the Beers criteria for drugs that can increase the risk in older persons. And so there's a specific table in the criteria that lists different anticholinergic drugs. And as far as the antidepressants go, it's mostly the older antidepressants, not the newer ones that most people are taking now, but things like Elevil, Amitriptyline, um, Nortriptyline are some of the older antidepressants. And we do still sometimes see them to help people sleep or to help with urinary incontinence or nerve pain, and even depression, they can be good for treating those things. But as a person gets older, they're more sensitive to these other negative effects. Right. And with our newer types of antidepressants, Paxil or Paroxetine is most associated with these anticholinergic properties. So we usually try and switch them to one of the other antidepressants that aren't as associated with it. So definitely probably the most common thing we try to take people off of now is paroxetine. So I think the important takeaway for a person that's not a healthcare provider here is just to talk to your pharmacist, especially if you are caring for someone that's older, whether or not they have dementia. Because when a patient, as a patient ages, there's more risks associated with medications that you may tolerate fine when you're 40, but you may not tolerate when you're 80. And trying to find a clinician that specializes in patients that are older. Um, so in the practice where I work, we have a geriatrician and she only sees patients that are over 55. And I've just learned so much from her in the way that she practices. And it's so different than a person who cares for someone of all ages. Um, so if you can try to find one of those for your parents or your grandparents that may be aging, um, I think that that's extremely beneficial. Absolutely, absolutely. Because the study really found that there was 
an even bigger association with uh, danger with these drugs sometimes if people started these medications before they got older. Right. So it's important to even think about maybe they're not having these side effects yet, but having someone who can recognize it and intervene before those things develop. Um, And then we definitely saw um, that your risk of dementia was increased by 50% if you had been on any of these highly anticholinergic drugs for three years um, every day. So, again, the longer duration that people stay on the medications, the greater their risk is down the road. And so working to try and get people off of them as early as possible and minimize that exposure, again, can potentially help not only them, but then you as their caregiver um, in delaying that onset. And also considering other strategies that people can use to help with these disease states. So if someone is on a medication for something that they need to help controlling, um, we can provide alternate resources or lifestyle changes or maybe even other medications that can help because obviously we don't want the person to suffer from whatever that disease state is, um, but maybe just coming up with a better plan for them as well. Absolutely. Anything else that you think is important to mention or any other resources that you would want to mention for people if they wanted to learn more about this? I know I'll definitely link the Alzheimer's Association because you mentioned a lot about that. But is there anything else that people should take a look at if they wanted to learn more about this topic? Sure. So there um, are also... um, geriatric senior care pharmacists um, that specialize in working. And a lot of them are consultants. So they uh, are available in your community. And we'll also link to the website where you can find a list of those in your area um, who could come and just for a flat fee, even review medications once for you and give you some of those helpful alternatives. Oh, that's great. I'm going to recommend that to my grandma because she doesn't listen to me. So (laughs) maybe if she pays someone, she'll listen to them. All right, Amber. So to wrap up, I'm going to ask you my one question that I ask everyone, which is what is your one health and wellness tip that you would like our listeners to leave with today? Sure. So I think probably for me, what's been getting me through a lot lately is remembering that just a 20 minute power nap can really be reinvigorating. Love it. Um, So certainly if you can get as much sleep as possible overnight, that's ideal. But if you just need to recharge, just a 20 minute quick power nap can um, really be healthy in helping your brain recharge and helping you get through the rest of your day. So that's what I've been doing a lot lately. I love it. And it's better than chugging three Red Bulls. Absolutely. (laughs) Um, All right, Amber. So thank you so much for being with us today. I really enjoyed our conversation. And if anyone has any questions for Amber, I will put her email address in the show notes if that's okay with her. She's saying yes. Um, So if you have any questions or if you would like additional resources, you can feel free to email her. And thank you so much for tuning in. Again, please follow us on Facebook at HealthFormation. If you have any questions for me, shoot me an email at healthformation.podcast at gmail.com. And I hope you have a happy and healthy day. Thanks. Bye.